Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. When that's a round table, we dance where we're able. We do routines and all the scenes of footwork impeccable. We dine well here in Camelot, we eat ham and jam and spam Second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. You're listening to episode 284 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the questing beast from Arthurian legend. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Today, we're going cryptid hunting. Medieval books and legends are filled with many strange creatures. Some of them are familiar to us today, like dragons and griffins. But others are unfamiliar and little known. One of these is the questing beast, a creature that appears in the literature about King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. For example, the questing beast occurs in Thomas Mallory's classic work, Le Mort d'Arthur, or The Death of Arthur. The questing beast is described as the strangest beast that Arthur ever saw or even heard of. Today, we'd call such an animal a cryptid, from the Greek word kryptos, or hidden. So a cryptid is a hidden animal. But what was the questing beast? What made it so strange? Was it just a creature of medieval imagination, or could it have a basis in the real world? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, where do we want to begin today's mystery? Although the questing beast is mentioned in several different works of literature from this period, we're going to start with Thomas Mallory's The Death of Arthur, and I'm just going to call the book by its English name to minimize the amount of French pronunciation I have to do in this episode because my French pronunciation is far from great. Thomas Mallory's presentation of the beast is the standard one, and most of the other medieval descriptions of the beast are in line with it, though not all of them are. Then let's start by talking about Thomas Mallory. Who was he? Well, for a start, Thomas Mallory was the author of The Death of Arthur, which is the most famous telling of the story of King Arthur. And the book's title is kind of a spoiler. It's the medieval equivalent of John dies at the end. So, yeah, Arthur dies at the end. And yes, we will have a future episode devoted to King Arthur and whether he was a real historical individual. But that's not the mystery we're looking at today. 
Unfortunately, we don't know a huge amount about Thomas Mallory himself. He was from the island of Great Britain, and he was active around the year 1470 during the reign of King Edward IV. But beyond that, not a lot is certain. Here's the article on him from the online version of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Thomas Mallory, in full, Sir Thomas Mallory, flourished circa 1470, English writer whose identity remains uncertain, but whose name is famous as that of the author of Le Mort d'Arthur, the first prose account in English of the rise and fall of the legendary King Arthur and the Fellowship of the Round Table. Even in the 16th century, that is, the century after he lived, Mallory's identity was unknown, although there was a tradition that he was a Welshman. In the colophon to Le Mort d'Arthur, the author, calling himself Sir Thomas Mallory Knight, says that he finished the work in the ninth year of the reign of Edward IV, that is, March 4, 1469, to March 3, 1470, and adds a prayer for good deliverance from prison. The only known knight at this time with a name like Mallory was Thomas Mallory of Newbold Revel in the parish of Monks Kirby, Warwickshire. This Mallory was jailed on various occasions during the period 1450 to 60, but it is not recorded that he was in prison about 1470 when the colophon was written. A Thomas Mallory or Mallory knight was excluded from four general pardons granted by Edward IV to the Lancastrians in 1468 and 1470. This Mallory, who may have been Mallory of Newbold Revel, was probably the author of Le Mort d'Arthur. According to Sir William Dugdale's Antiquities of Warwickshire, 1656, Mallory of Newbold Revel served in the train of Richard Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick, at the Siege of Calais, presumably 1436, but possibly 1414, was Knight of the Shire in 1445, and died on March 14, 1471. He was buried in the chapel of St. Francis at Greyfriars near Newgate. He had been imprisoned in Newgate in 1460. So that's about all that can be said about Thomas Mallory with confidence. He lived in the 1400s, which was before the Protestant Reformation began in 1517, so everybody in Western Europe was Catholic then. He was from Great Britain, uh, being either English or possibly Welsh. He got put in prison. He worked on the death of Arthur in prison, basing it on French tales, but adapting it according to his own vision. He apparently was a knight. He may have been the same person as Thomas Mallory of Newbold Revel, and he may have been one of four men who were excluded from the pardons given by King Edward IV. If so, he died in 1471, just a year after completing the death of Arthur. What would it mean if he was excluded from the pardons issued by Edward IV? It would mean that King Edward was really, really mad at him, and quite possibly that Edward viewed him as a particularly dangerous individual. Either way, it would mean that they were on opposite sides in a conflict, and that conflict would have been part of the Wars of the Roses, which were fought between two branches of the House of Plantagenet, the House of Lancaster, which had a red rose as its symbol, and the House of York, which had a white rose as its symbol, hence the name Wars of the Roses. These were ultimately bloody wars of extermination, with both houses determined to completely exterminate the male line of the other house and end their claim to the throne. The last male heir of Lancaster was killed in 1471, so their claim to the throne passed to the House of Tudor, 
and the last male heir of York was killed just over a decade later in 1483. Eventually, an arranged marriage between the houses of Tudor and York brought peace, and the House of Tudor adopted a rose that was both red and white as its symbol. But the Wars of the Roses were super violent, and King Edward IV belonged to the House of York, so he may have regarded Thomas Mallory as a dangerous supporter of the House of Lancaster and kept him in prison. Let's talk about the book that made Mallory famous. What can you tell us about Le Mont d'Arthur? According to the Encyclopedia Britannica's article on Mallory, Mallory completed Le Mont d'Arthur about 1470. It was printed by William Caxton in 1485. The only extant manuscript that predates Caxton's edition is in the British Library, London. It retells the adventures of the Knights of the Round Table in chronological sequence from the birth of Arthur. Based on French romances, that is, French tales based on legends, Mallory's account differs from his models in its emphasis on the brotherhood of the knights, rather than on courtly love and on the conflicts of loyalty, brought about by the adultery of Lancelot and Guinevere, that finally destroy the fellowship. So there were French accounts of King Arthur before Mallory wrote. Uh, Mallory wasn't the first to write about him, but Mallory was the first to write in English prose as opposed to poetry or song, so far as we know. And it's in his account that we meet the questing beast. Where does the questing beast appear in Le Mortateur? It first appears in Book 1, Chapter 19. In this passage, Arthur is riding his horse and hunting. Uh, he's pursuing a stag, a male deer. But despite the fact that he's a very skilled hunter, this particular hunt isn't going well for him. We read, And so King Arthur put the spur to his mount and rode after the stag for a long while. Heretofore, by his skill, he was most likely to hit the stag, but this time, King Arthur chased the stag for so long a distance that his horse lost its breath and fell down dead. Then a yeoman fetched the king another horse. When the king saw the stag had escaped into the forest and his horse was dead, he set himself down by a fountain, that is, a spring of water, and there he fell into deep thought. So this hunt is not going well. Arthur's horse got so exhausted it died, his stag got away, and he's now depressed and brooding by a spring. But then something strange happens. As he sat thus, he dreamed he heard the baying of some thirty hounds, and with that the king saw coming toward him the strangest beast that he ever saw or heard of. So the beast went to the well and drank thereof and the sound was in the beast's belly like the barking of thirty dogs. Then the beast departed with a resounding noise at which the king marveled greatly. And then King Arthur was lost in thought, and therewith he fell asleep. So as he's sitting by the spring, Arthur dreams that he hears the sound of thirty dogs baying. He then seems to wake up, and he sees the strangest beast he ever saw or heard of. We're not told what it looked like here, but we will be told what it looked like in another passage. And the sound he heard isn't coming from the mouth of the beast. Instead, it was coming from the belly of the beast, meaning from inside it. This was an internal sound that the beast was making. After it was finished drinking from the stream, the beast then left with a great noise, presumably the same noise Arthur had heard it making, and then, still brooding and waiting for his yeoman to get back with another horse, Arthur fell asleep again. But then, 
a strange visitor appeared, walking on foot. Just then there came a knight afoot, and he said unto King Arthur, Knight, full of thought and sleep, tell me if you saw a strange beast pass this way. Such a one did I see, said King Arthur, that is past two miles. What would you have to do with that beast? Sir, said the knight, I have followed that beast for such a long time that I have killed my horse. Would be to God that I had another mount to pursue my quest. Just then a squire came with the king's horse, and when the knight beheld the horse, he beseeched King Arthur to give it to him. And he said, I have followed this quest for twelve months, and either I shall achieve it or bleed of the best blood of my body. So while Arthur is resting and waiting for a new horse to be brought, a knight appears. The knight is following the questing beast, and he's been following it for a year, meaning he's on a quest to find it. That's his mission, and he's really serious about it. He says he'll either find it or give his life's blood in trying to find it. And he's already killed his own horse following it, just like Arthur did with his horse hunting the stag. So when Arthur's new horse shows up, he asks Arthur if he can have it. Mallory then tells us who this knight was. King Pellinore was this man's name, who at that time followed the questing beast, and after his death, Sir Palamedes followed it. So right now, the man following the questing beast is King Pellinore, but Mallory lets us know that later on this mission will be inherited by a man named Sir Palamedes. In any event, King Pellinore begs Arthur to give him his horse, and they start talking about who should follow the questing beast. Sir Knight, said King Arthur, leave that quest and allow me to have it, and I will follow the questing beast another twelve month. Ah, fool, said the knight unto King Arthur, your desire is in vain, for it shall never be achieved but by me or my next of kin. With that, the knight grasped King Arthur's horse and mounted upon the saddle and said, Great thanks, for this horse is now my own. Well, said King Arthur, you may take my horse by force, but I want to know which of us is the better on horseback. Seek me here whenever you wish, said the knight, and here near this well you shall find me. And with that, the knight continued on his way. So King Arthur volunteers to take up King Pellinore's mission of hunting the questing beast, but Pellinore says that won't work, because the mission can only be fulfilled by him or his next of kin. And he basically, but politely, steals King Arthur's new horse and rides off. And that's our first encounter with the questing beast. We really don't know what it looks like. We're only told that it's very strange and that it makes a sound inside its body that's kind of like 30 dogs baying or 60 dogs in some versions. Unfortunately, King Pellinore will not fulfill his quest to catch the, the questing beast. And we get a reminder of just how bloody the story we're reading is with knights killing each other off. In book two, chapter 10, we read... So there was a knight who was called the Knight of the Questing Beast, and his name was King Pellinore, and he was a stalwart man-of-arms, and this knight smote a mighty stroke at King Lot as he fought against his enemies. But his stroke failed, and instead hit the horse's neck, so that the beast fell to the ground with King Lot. Whereupon King Pellinore dealt King Lot a great blow through the helmet and head and into his brain. And then all the army of Orkney fled because of the death of King Lot, and there were slain many mothers' sons. But King Pellinore bore the blame for the death of King Lot, for which Sir Gawain avenged the death of his father in the tenth year after he was made knight. 
and he slew King Pellinor with his own hands. So King Pellinor killed King Lot, and King Lot's son, Sir Gawain, killed King Pellinor in revenge. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. So King Pellinor didn't get to catch the questing beast, and the task would be transferred to Sir Palamedes. He's an interesting figure, and unlike everybody else in the story, he isn't a Christian, at least not yet. He's actually a Saracen. In some stories, his father was an exiled king from Babylon who made his way to Britain, which would mean that Palamedes is of Iraqi origin. So he's from the Middle East, and he's also a Muslim, which is quite unusual for a knight in medieval Britain. Now, the next time we hear about the questing beast is in Book 9, Chapter 12. Sir Palamedes is hunting it, and this time we get a physical description of what it looked like. In the meanwhile, there came Sir Palamedes, the good knight, following the questing beast, which had a head like a serpent, body like a leopard, buttocks like a lion, and hooves like a stag. And from its body there issued forth such a sound as if it had been the noise of sixty hounds baying, and such a noise did that beast make wheresoever it went. And Sir Palamedes evermore did follow this beast, for it was called his quest. And just as he followed this beast, it ran by Sir Tristan, and soon after came Sir Palamedes. So to relate the matter briefly, Sir Palamedes smote down Sir Tristan and Sir Lamorak, both with one spear. Then he continued to pursue after the baying beast, which was called the questing beast. Therefore these two knights were extremely wrathful, that Sir Palamedes would not fight on foot with them. This is one of a bunch of duels that Sir Palamedes had with Sir Tristan. They have a kind of love-hate-best-frenemies relationship. And on this occasion, Palamedes didn't even get off his horse to fight with Sir Tristan. He just stabbed Sir Tristan and Sir Lamorak with his spear as he was riding so he could keep following the questing beast. And the important part for our purposes is that we get a physical description of the beast. It has a head like a serpent, a body like a leopard, buttocks like a lion, and hooves like a stag. And that does sound really strange. You can imagine what King Arthur thought when he saw it drinking from the stream. The noise that the beast makes is also mentioned in this text. In this passage, in this translation, it's described as the noise of 60 hounds baying. Other passages in the same translation sometimes say 30 hounds, and other translations say it sounds like 30 couple hounds. But the point is, it sounds like a lot of dogs baying. And that's actually where it gets its name. You might think that its name comes from the fact that King Pellinor and Sir Palamedes were on a quest to catch it, and so it became known as the Questing Beast. But that's not where the name comes from. Its name actually comes from the noise that it makes. In French, it's called the Beast Glatissant, or Best Glatissant. And Glatissant is related to the word Glapissant which means yelping or barking. 
particularly when the yelping or barking is done by small dogs or foxes. So because of the noise it made, it became known in French as the best glatissant or beast gladissant, or the baying beast, if you want to translate it directly. But in 14th century English and 15th century English, the word question meant to seek game or hunt. So when dogs were on the hunt and chasing prey, their barking or baying was described as questing. The animal thus became known as the questing beast because it makes a noise kind of sort of like dogs on the hunt. This is a point that is explicitly made the next time we hear about the questing beast in Book 10, Chapter 13. The strong knight rode on his way at a soft pace, and King Mark rode after him, praising him greatly. But the knight would not answer, and only sighed deeply, hanging down his head and taking no heed of King Mark's words. Thus did they ride for three miles, and then this knight called to him a servant and bade him ride until yonder fair manor and commend me to the lady of that castle, and ask her to send me refreshments of good meats and drinks. And if she asks you who I am, tell her that I am the knight who follows after the baying beast, that is to say, in English, the questing beast. For that beast, wherever it went, it bayed in the belly with such a noise as if it had been sixty hounds. So the servant went on his way and came to the manor and saluted the lady and told her by whom he had been sent. And when she understood that he came from the knight who followed the questing beast, she said, O sweet Lord Jesus, when shall I see that noble knight, my dear son Palamedes? Alas, will he not abide with me? So like a lot of teenagers and young adults today, Sir Palamedes just wanted wants to drop by home and pick up a meal and maybe do some laundry, but he doesn't want to spend any quality time with mom. And the passage confirms that it was called the questing beast because of the sound it made. By this point, Sir Palamedes has really become identified with his quest to catch the beast. He's introduced in the text multiple times before people know what his name is as the knight who follows the questing beast. He's even associated with its image. Here's part of an account of a jousting tournament that Sir Palamedes fought in. So then Sir Palamedes and Sir Gunnarays made ready in the field to joust on horseback. Each one got a spear in his hand and they met so fiercely together that their spears shattered. Then they pulled out swords, and Sir Palamedes smote Sir Gunnarays down to the earth, and then he yanked off Sir Gunnarays' helmet and smote off his head, and then they went to supper. And the damsel would have loved Sir Palamedes as her paramour, but the French book says she was of his kin. So then Sir Palamedes disguised himself in this manner. On his shield he bore the insignia of the questing beast, and he also bore it upon all the trappings of his horse. And when he was thus ready, he asked the Hote Prince to give him leave to joust with other knights. So Sir Palamedes makes the questing beast part of his branding. He's got pictures of it on his merch. I'm just amazed, though, at the casual homicide in this passage. Sir Palamedes knocks Sir Gonorays off his horse, then he yanks off his helmet, then he cuts off his head, and then they go have supper. Wow. Homicide much? We also see how other people react to Sir Palamedes based on his connection to the questing beast. For example, his best frenemy, Sir Tristan, was also an avid hunter. In fact, he went hunting daily, and... Sir Tristan rode armed on his daily hunt 
and his men bore his shield and his spear. It befell then, on a day a little before the month of May, Sir Tristan chased a stag swiftly passing by, and the stag ran to a fair well. So then Tristan alighted from his mount and took off his helmet to drink of that bubbling water. Just then he heard and saw the questing beast come to the well. And when Sir Tristan beheld that beast, he put on his helmet, for he believed he would soon meet Sir Palamedes, because that beast was his quest. So Tristan sees the questing beast drinking from a well, and he puts on his helmet again in case he needs to fight Sir Palamedes, because he knows Sir Palamedes will be coming by soon since he's hunting the questing beast. Just so, Sir Tristan saw an armed knight upon a noble steed come riding toward him, whereupon Sir Tristan saluted him, and they spoke of many things. And this knight's name was Sir Brunus Sans Pite. Just then there came unto them the noble knight Sir Palamedes, and each one saluted the other, and they spoke graciously unto each other. I should mention that one of the reasons Sir Tristan and Sir Palamedes are frenemies is that they're in love with the same woman, the beautiful lady Isolde, and so they have a medieval love triangle thing going. But they're on the friendly side of things right now. Fair knights, said Sir Brunus Sans Pite. I can tell you tidings. What is that? said these knights. Sirs, said Sir Brunus Sans Pite, know you well that King Mark is put in prison by his own knights, and all was for love of Sir Tristan, because King Mark had twice put Sir Tristan in prison, and Sir Percival once delivered the noble knight Sir Tristan out of prison, and the last time Queen La Belle Isolde freed Sir Tristan, and she escaped clean away with him into this realm. And all this while King Mark, the evil traitor, remains in prison. Is this the truth? said Sir Palamedes. Then we shall anon hear of Sir Tristan. And if one were to say that I love La Belle Isolde, as I dare warrant that I do, she has my service above all other ladies, and she shall have it for the term of my life. As they stood thus talking, they saw appear before them a knight, all armed, on a great horse, and one of his men bore his shield, and another man his spears. And anon, as that knight espied them, he took his shield and his spear, and prepared himself to joust. Fair fellows, said Sir Tristan, yonder is a knight who wishes to joust with us. Let us determine which of us shall encounter with him, for I see he is of the court of King Arthur. It shall not be long before he is met with, said Sir Palamedes, for I never found any knight in my quest for this beast, who I ever refused if he would joust. And I may, as well as you, follow that questing beast, said Sir Brutus Sans Pite. Then you shall do battle with me, said Sir Palamedes. So Sir Briunus says he'll join Sir Palamedes' mission to hunt the questing beast, and Sir Palamedes says that he can fight alongside him in the upcoming joust. Unfortunately, that doesn't work out, because when Sir Palamedes goes to joust the newly arrived knight from King Arthur's court, Sir Bleoberus, Sir Bleoberus smashes him so hard that both Sir Palamedes and his horse fell over, and then Sir Briunus ran away. He buggered off. So he has, he's scarpered. Brave off and ran away. No! Bravely ran away, away. I didn't. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail. No! His brave so off and turned about. I didn't. He chickened out. I never did! Oh, Lord! I never! 
Now, by this point, Sir Palamedes has been hunting the questing beast for a long time, and he's been living among Christians for a long time, but he's not baptized. He also starts working for King Arthur, which shows you that Arthur was an equal opportunity employer, since he's got a Muslim working as one of his knights. And at the moment, Sir Palamedes has another side quest that he's pursuing. Late in the book, we read, Then Sir Palamedes took his ship and arrived at the Delectable Isle, and in the meanwhile, Sir Hermond, the dead king's brother, went to the Red City, and there he told them that there was come a knight of King Arthur to avenge King Carmonce's death. And his name is Sir Palamedes, the good knight, said Sir Hermond, and for the most part he follows the questing beast. Then all the city made great joy, for much had they heard of Sir Palamedes and of his remarkable prowess. So the people of the city ordained a messenger and sent him unto the two traitors' brethren where they were at a castle nearby, and bade them make themselves ready, for a knight of King Arthur's court would come to do battle with them both at once. He is welcome, said the two brethren, but tell us, we pray you, if it be Sir Lancelot or any of his blood. He is none of that blood, said the messenger. Then we care little, said the two brethren, for if he is not of the blood of Sir Lancelot, we do not fear to fight with him. Know you well, said the messenger, that his name is Sir Palamedes, and he is yet unchristened, though he is a noble knight. Well, said they, if he is now unchristened, he shall never be christened. So the two brethren agreed to be at the city after two days. And when Sir Palamedes was come to the city, the folk made very great joy of him. And then they beheld him and saw that he was well made, bold and strong, not maimed in his limbs, and neither too young nor too old. And so all the people praised him. Though he was not yet christened, he behaved in the best manner, and was most faithful and true to his promise, and of the finest character. And Sir Palamedes had made a vow that he would not be christened until the time that he had captured the questing beast, which was a most wondrous creature and of great significance, for Merlin had prophesied much of that beast. So Sir Palamedes has made a vow that he won't get baptized until he catches the questing beast. Perhaps his thought was something like, if God lets me complete my quest to catch the questing beast here in this Christian land, then I'll become a Christian. Now, it's not that Sir Palamedes doesn't want to become a Christian, but he's made this vow that he won't until he catches the questing beast. He's also vowed that he'll fight a certain number of battles before he gets baptized. And it's really that latter vow that's the major sticking point of why he's not yet baptized. But soon, he's getting near the number of battles that he needs in order to be baptized. He's just fought and gravely wounded a knight named Sir Galeron, and his old buddy Sir Tristan comes to fight with him. But Sir Tristan isn't wearing his armor, and Sir Palamedes could totally kill him, which wouldn't be chivalrous, killing a man who isn't even wearing armor. So Sir Palamedes says... Now I beg you, answer a question that I shall ask of you. Tell me what it is, said Sir Tristan, and I shall answer you with the truth, so help me God. I put the case to you that, said Sir Palamedes, if you were armored in all parts as well as I am, and I were as naked as you are, what would you do to me now according to your true chivalry? Ah, said Sir Tristan, now I understand you well, Sir Palamedes, for now I must render my own judgment. And God bless me, what I have to say shall not be said from any fear of you. 
but it is this. I would not do battle with you, and you should part from me. And so I will not do battle with you, said Sir Palamedes, and therefore ride forth on your way. As to that, said Sir Tristan, I may choose either to ride or to abide. But Sir Palamedes, I wonder about one thing, that you are so good a knight, and yet you will not be christened, and your brother, Sir Safer, has been christened for many a day. As for that, said Sir Palamedes, I may not yet be christened because of one vow that I made many years ago, even though in my heart and in my soul I believe in Jesus Christ and his sweet mother Mary. But I still have one battle to fight, and when that is done, I shall be baptized with all goodwill. By my head, said Sir Tristan, as to that one battle, you shall not seek it long. God forbid that through my fault you should any longer live thus as a Muslim. For yonder is a knight that you, Sir Palamedes, have hurt and smitten down. Now allow me to don his armor, and I shall soon fulfill your vow. As you wish, said Sir Palamedes, so shall it be. So then they both rode unto that wounded knight who sat upon a river bank, and then Sir Tristan saluted him, and the knight weakly saluted Sir Tristan in return. Sir knight, said Sir Tristan, I ask you to tell me your proper name. Sir, he said, my name is Sir Galeron of Galway, and I am a knight of the round table. So help me God, said Sir Tristan, I am very sorry for your hurt. But this is it, I must pray you to lend me your armor, for you see that I am unarmored, and I must do battle with this knight. Sir, said Sir Galeron, you shall have it with all goodwill. But you must beware, for I warn you that this knight is strong. And, sir, I pray you to tell me your name, and the name of that knight who has beaten me. Sir, said Sir Tristan, as to my name, it is Sir Tristan de Lyon. And as to the name of the knight who has hurt you, he is Sir Palamedes, brother to the good knight Sir Safer. And Sir Palamedes is yet unchristened. Alas, said Sir Galeron, it is a pity that so good a knight and so noble a man of arms should be unchristened. So help me God, said Sir Tristan, either he shall slay me or I shall slay him, but he shall be christened before we part. My lord, Sir Tristan, said Sir Galeron, your renown and honor is well known throughout many realms. God save you this day from disgrace and dishonor. So Sir Tristan puts on Sir Galeron's armor, and then he and Sir Palamedes have a huge fight. It goes on for two hours, and Mallory describes it at length. Sir Tristan mounted upon his own horse, and in his hand he took Sir Galeron's spear. With this Sir Palamedes made himself ready, and so Sir Tristan and Sir Palamedes came hurtling together, and each one smote the other in the middle of their shields whereupon Sir Palamedes' spear broke, and Sir Tristan smote down Sir Palamedes, horse and man, to the earth. Then Sir Palamedes, as soon as he could, jumped from his horse and dressed his shield and pulled out his sword. Sir Tristan saw that and dismounted and tied his horse to a tree. Then they came eagerly together like two wild boars, clashing, crashing, and clanging, as noble men who had often been well-proved in battle. But Sir Palamedes always dreaded the might of Sir Tristan, and therefore he fought warily. Thus did they fight for more than two hours. But often Sir Tristan delivered such hard blows at Sir Palamedes that he made him to kneel. And Sir Palamedes broke and cut away many pieces of Sir Tristan's shield. And then Sir Palamedes wounded Sir Tristan most sorely, 
for he was a good fighting man. So then Sir Tristan grew furious beyond measure, and he rushed upon Sir Palamedes with such force that Sir Palamedes fell face down to the earth. But Sir Palamedes swiftly leapt to his feet, whereupon Sir Tristan wounded him badly through the shoulder. And ever did Sir Tristan fight fiercely, but Sir Palamedes did not fail to give Sir Tristan many punishing blows. At last Sir Tristan redoubled his strokes, and by good fortune he knocked Sir Palamedes' sword out of his hand. And if Sir Palamedes had stooped to pick up his sword, he would have been slain. So then Sir Palamedes stood still and beheld his sword with a sorrowful heart. How now, said Sir Tristan unto Sir Palamedes, now do I have the advantage over you as you had over me earlier this day. But it shall never be said in any court, nor among good knights, that Sir Tristan would slay any knight who is weaponless. Therefore take your sword, and let us make an end of this battle. But now that the two of them have been fighting, honor has been satisfied sufficiently. Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk happens, and the two of them reconcile. As to this battle, said Sir Palamedes, I would gladly make an end of it, but to tell the truth, I have no great desire to fight any more for this reason. My offense to you is not so great that we cannot be friends. All of my transgression is and was for my love of La Belle Isolde, and as to her, I dare say she is peerless among all other ladies. Also, I never caused her any dishonor, and by her have I obtained the greatest part of my honor and I never offended her own person. As for the offense that I have done, it was against your own person, and for that offense you have given me this day many heavy blows, and I have given you some in return. Now I dare say I never encountered a man of your might, unless it was Sir Lancelot du Lac. Therefore I beseech you, my lord, forgive me for all the offense that I have done unto you, and this day take me to the nearest church, there let me first be fully confessed, and then see that I'd be truly baptized. And then we will all ride together to the court of King Arthur, so that we may be there at the high feast. Now take your horse, said Sir Tristan, and as you say, so will it be. God shall forgive you for all your ill will as I do. And here within a mile is the Bishop of Carlisle, who shall give you the sacrament of baptism. So then Sir Tristan and Sir Palamedes took their horses, and Sir Galeron rode with them, and when they came to the bishop, Sir Tristan told him of their desire. Then the bishop ordered a great vessel to be filled with water, and when he had hallowed it, he then confessed Sir Palamedes, and Sir Tristan and Sir Galeron were his godfathers. By saying he confessed Sir Palamedes, I assume that that means that the bishop had Sir Palamedes make a profession of faith. So he said the creed, as is normal before baptism, and then he gets baptized. So, yay, Sir Palamedes is now a Christian. And his frenemy, Sir Tristan, and the knight he wounded, Sir Galeron, are his godfathers. They then go back to Camelot to celebrate. Then, soon after, they departed, riding toward Camelot, where King Arthur and Queen Guinevere were, and the greater part of the knights of the Round Table were there also. And so the king and all the court were glad that Sir Palamedes had been christened. And at that same feast, in came Sir Galahad, son unto Sir Lancelot de Lac, and he sat in the seat perilous. So then, after this, all the knights of the round table departed and separated, and Sir Tristan returned to Joya's guard, 
and Sir Palamedes followed after the questing beast. And that's it. That's the last of the questing beast that we hear about in the death of Arthur. Wait, what? We don't even hear about whether Sir Palamedes caught the questing beast? We need closure on this. We do. Unfortunately, the death of Arthur is about King Arthur, and it doesn't sew up all the loose ends regarding secondary characters like Sir Palamedes. But fortunately, there's a whole body of Arthurian literature, and in other works, we learn what happened with Sir Palamedes' quest, and he was successful. Now that he was a Christian and freed from earthly cares, Sir Palamedes was able to catch the beast during the quest for the Holy Grail. And yes, we will have a future episode on the Holy Grail. Sir Palamedes, Percival, and Galahad are able to chase the questing beast into a lake, and they were able to slay it. So ultimately, Sir Palamedes had a successful hunt and fulfilled his quest. Which brings us to the point where we can look at the mystery of the questing beast from the perspectives of faith and reason. And before we get to that, we like to stop here and take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Camden O, Joseph S, Christy K, Skylar D, and Tony G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the questing beast? There are two principal theories that we need to consider. First, that the questing beast is just a medieval legend, that it isn't based on anything except human imagination. And second, that despite its fantastic description, it's actually based on something that is real and that really existed in medieval Europe. So let's first, what can we say about the questing beast from the faith perspective? In the Middle Ages, it was common to interpret creatures in terms of theological messages. Uh, for example, the pelican was often regarded as a symbol of Christ. Wikipedia explains, The Physiologus, a didactic Christian text from the 3rd or 4th century, claims that pelicans kill their young when they grow and strike their parents in the face, but then the mother laments them for three days, after which she strikes her side and brings them back to life with her blood. This, the physiologus explains as mirroring the pain inflicted on God by people's idolatry and the self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross redeeming the sinful. See the blood and water gushing from the wound in his side on the cross in John 19.34. This text was widely copied, translated, and sometimes closely paraphrased during the Middle Ages, for instance, by 13th century authors, Guillaume Leclerc and Bartholomeus Anglicus. Likewise, a folktale from India says that a pelican killed her young by rough treatment, but was then so contrite that she resurrected them with her own blood. In a newer, also medieval version of the European myth, the pelican was thought to be particularly attentive to her young, to the point of providing them with blood 
by wounding her own breast when no other food was available. As a result, the pelican came to symbolize the passion of Jesus and the Eucharist, supplementing the image of the lamb and the flag. A reference to this mythical characteristic is contained, for example, in the hymn by St. Thomas Aquinas, Adoro te devote, or Humbly we adore thee, where in the penultimate verse he describes Christ as the loving divine pelican, one drop of whose blood can save the world. And it wasn't just pelicans that medieval Christians did this with. They tried to find theological messages in everything, all the plants and animals that God had made. And medieval books about animals, known as bestiaries, are filled with such lessons. So it wouldn't be at all surprising to find them trying to read such messages into the questing beast. However, this would be a matter of theological speculation rather than church teaching, and this kind of theological speculation really isn't part of our cryptological hunt today. So we'll be focusing on the reason perspective and what it has to say about the questing beast. Then what about the theory that the questing beast was nothing but a legend, just the product of human imagination? It's certainly a tempting option, given how strange the description of the beast is. It's unlike any familiar European animal, and so it's natural to wonder if the whole thing is just a product of imagination. But before dismissing it as just a legend, we should ask whether there is anything in reality that it could be. And I should note that Mallory's description of the questing beast is not the only one out there. Some sources describe it differently. Wikipedia states, The earlier French King Arthur story, Perlevaux, however, offers an entirely different depiction of the beast. There it is described as pure white, smaller than a fox, and beautiful to look at. The noise from its belly is the sound of its offspring, who tear the creature apart from the inside. The author takes the beast as a symbol of Christ, destroyed by the followers of the old law, the twelve tribes of Israel. Gerbert de Montreuil provides a similar vision of the beast in his continuation of Percival, the story of the grail, though he says that it is wondrously large and interprets the noise and subsequent gruesome death by its own offspring as a symbol of impious churchgoers who disturb the sanctity of mass by talking. So there's the common medieval theme of trying to read theological lessons out of animals God created, whether it's Christ being killed by followers of the old law or impious Christians talking during mass. What we do have is at least a few sources that describe the beast differently, with Perlevaux even describing it as smaller than a fox. But Perlevaux is considered the least canonical Arthurian story because it diverges so much from other stories of King Arthur. And Mallory's description of the questing beast seems to be the standard, so we'll be focusing on that one. Just to refresh our memories, Mallory says the questing beast has a head like a snake, a body like a leopard, hindquarters like a lion, and feet like the hooves of a stag, which are split, so the questing beast is supposed to have split or cloven hooves. Now, I've seen images where people have spliced together photos of all these animals, like the one we're using for this week's episode artwork. And they do indeed look really strange and unbelievable. If anything like that existed in Europe in King Arthur's time or later in the Middle Ages, it would have to have a vanishingly small population of cryptids. 
that would raise challenges like how the creature could survive with such a small breeding population, how it could remain undiscovered today if it was an animal of any size in densely populated Europe, and why we haven't found any bones or other remains of it. Yeah, if the body part descriptions are precise, then all of these things would be challenges for the idea of a hidden population of these animals in Europe. Even if they'd gone extinct by now, we should still be finding their remains. But I don't think we should take the body part descriptions as precise. We shouldn't imagine the different body parts being exactly like those of a snake, a leopard, a lion, and a stag. We should let them have some flexibility in play. They're not the same as those animals, just similar to them. If the questing beast was real, it would be an unknown beast, and someone trying to describe it would use its similarities to other animals that they did know. We thus should think of these described body parts as only being approximate, kind of like the other animals. So what about it? If we think of the descriptions as approximate, could it fit any actual animal? Here comes the twist in this episode. Yes, there is such an animal, one that's familiar to us today, and we're about to identify precisely what it is. The key to recognizing it is found in recognizing that head like a snake likely means that it isn't just the shape of the snake's head that's notable. It's what snake's heads are commonly attached to that is notable. To explain, here's an excerpt from Professor Dorsey Armstrong in her Medieval Myths and Mysteries course on Audible. So here we go. The first inclination on the part of many of us, I would suggest, is to try and think, could this be a real creature that someone is trying to describe and it seems magical to them just because they've never seen it before? So I started trying to think, is there an animal that looks like this? Is there anything that has a long neck, leopard-like spots, and cloven hooves? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. It sounds an awful lot like a giraffe. And that's right. One of the most notable things about a snake's head is that it's attached to a really long neck, which is the snake's body. And if you let the questing beast have a really long neck, everything falls into place. Giraffes have their heads on the end of a really long neck, like snakes. Giraffes have bodies that are covered with spots, like a leopard. Giraffes have hindquarters that look like a lion's. And giraffes have cloven hooves just like stags. So this is a really promising candidate for what would be the basis of the questing beast. But wait, giraffes aren't native to Europe. They're native to only a few small areas, all of which are in sub-Saharan Africa. How would someone in Britain or anywhere in northern Europe ever see a giraffe? To answer that question, let's go back to Professor Armstrong. And of course, you may be thinking, how would people in medieval Europe know about giraffes. The thing is, people in the medieval world got around more than most of us think they did, and knowledge got shared along trade routes. Indeed, so did exotic animals. In fact, the Emperor Charlemagne, who ruled in the late 8th and early 9th century, had a famous menagerie that included, among other animals, lions, monkeys, camels, bears, and a special gift to Charlemagne 
from the Caliph of Baghdad, an elephant named Abu Labas. Other royals throughout the medieval world had menageries, but as you can imagine, in many cases, animals like leopards, cheetahs, and hyenas might not have fared so well in the medieval European climate, and maybe medieval Europeans weren't up on the latest thinking about how to house and contain these animals. One theory about the questing beast that I find fascinating is the suggestion that somewhere, sometime, a giraffe escaped from a royal menagerie. Imagine if you were an ordinary Englishman and you came upon a giraffe while walking through the woods. What would you think? How would you describe it? I think you describe it exactly the way the questing beast is described, and I think that's what happened. Either a giraffe escaped from a, from a menagerie and people saw it, or someone saw it in a menagerie and then described it. But one way or another, I think giraffes are the likely basis of the questing beast. And this isn't just Professor Armstrong's view. Other scholars have concluded the same thing. For example, in 2004, the, the journal Arthuriana published a piece by the scholar Helmut Nickel called What Kind of Animal Was the Questing Beast? And in it, he comes to the same conclusion. He also points out how the questing beast's head and neck are described in other works of Arthurian literature. He writes, In the Merlin section of the Boron Cycle, one version, manuscript 112, gives a detailed description of the beast's appearance, head and neck of a serpent, bristly, meaning maned, and flexible. And that sounds very much like a giraffe, head and neck, like a serpent. It's described as being bristly, which Nichols suggests might mean that it had a mane. I think it also could be a reference to the giraffe's ossicones. Ossicones are horn-like structures on a giraffe's head. They're made out of bone, and they're covered with skin and fur, and from, from a perspective on the ground, they, they could look like bristles. But giraffes also have manes that extend down their necks, so either way you go, their heads and necks could be described as bristly. And then the text specifically calls attention to how flexible their necks are, which, again, giraffes are famous for. Nickel points out, The detailed description of the beast's body from the prose Tristan is also taken over by the author of the Roman de Palamides, with the addition that the neck is like that of an animal called Deuce in his, Sir Palamides, language. In Persephorest, it is said that the beast's, quote, strange neck, end quote, resembles that of an animal that the Saracens call Daglor. So this is very promising. Not only does Purse Forest indicate that the beast has a strange neck, which is the most notable feature of a giraffe, it and Roman de Palamed give us names for the beast in Sir Palamede's native Saracen language. And since he was a Muslim from the Middle East, the audience would have understood that to be Arabic. This gives us a potential way to verify the beast's identity based on what the Arabic terms mean. With the Roman de Palamed saying it was called Deuce and Perseforest saying it was called Daglor. 
Since both of these terms start with the letter D, it's possible that they're variations on the same original word. Unfortunately, Nickel was unable to find anything out about the meaning of Daglor in Arabic, if it even has a meaning, and I wasn't able to find out anything about this word either. But Nickel had more luck with deuce. He writes, The French du, feminine deuce, means sweet, charming, pleasant. And it is generally thought that an Arabic word, zurafa, meaning graceful, nice, sweet, would be the root of giraffe. However, Arabic scholars insist that this is a false etymology, and giraffe is more likely derived from zarafa, which the Arabic-English lexicon lists as camelopard or giraffe, a certain beast of beautiful make, the forelegs are longer than its hind legs said to be called by a name signifying that it has a form of an assemblage of animals, i.e. camel, ox, leopard, because it has resemblances to the camel and the ox and the leopard. It seems that with the name Deuce, the author of the Roman de Palamides, picked the wrong ZRF word, although he was on the right track. The long swaying neck of a giraffe can be word pictured as that of a serpent, more flattering than that of a camel. The body with its pattern of irregular spots reminds of the spotted pelt of the leopard, while its narrow hindquarters and tufted tail are comparable to those of a lion that also look narrow against its imposingly maned shoulders. Feet like a stag's or like those of an ox obviously are meant to express that there were cloven hoofs. Here, Nickel makes a very good point about why the hindquarters of the questing beast were said to look like the hindquarters of a lion. It could be because a giraffe's buttocks and tufted tail look like the buttocks and tufted tail of a lion. Nickel also has uncovered possible confirmation from Arabic of the identity of the questing beast. He says that, according to the author of Roman de Palamed, the beast was called douce in Sir Palamede's language. Douce is a French word that means sweet, charming, or pleasant, and it was commonly thought that douce corresponds to zarafa in Arabic, which also means graceful, nice, and sweet. But the actual Arabic word for giraffe isn't zarafa, but zarafa, which sounds almost the same. So in trying to translate the Arabic word for giraffe, the author or one of his sources accidentally misheard zarafa as the sound-alike word zarafa and translated that into French. Still, I find this pretty compelling confirmation that the questing beast is a zarafa or giraffe. Finally, Nickel points out that the Arabic-English lexicon points out that giraffes are sometimes called by names that note their similarities to other animals. It specifically mentions camels, leopards, and oxen because it has a long, flexible neck like a camel spots like a leopard, and split hooves like an ox. And this is true. In Greek, a giraffe is called a camelopardus, from the Greek roots camel, meaning camel, and pardos, meaning leopard. The Greek name for a giraffe even came through Latin into English. And by the late 14th century, giraffes were being called camelopards in English. There's even a constellation in the northern sky that was identified in the 1600s that's known as Camelopardus, or the giraffe. 
So just like the questing beast, giraffes are also frequently compared to other animals, to the point that they're even called camel leopards in Greek, Latin, and sometimes English. The difference being that in Arthurian literature, the questing beast's head and neck are compared to that of a snake rather than that of a camel, but it sure sounds like we're talking about the same animal. Professor Armstrong proposed that the giraffe at the base of the questing beast legends may have come from a menagerie in Europe. But do we have any evidence of giraffes appearing in such menageries? We do, and Helmut Nickel cites two pieces of evidence in this regard. The first comes from medieval China. He writes, In support of the notion that the questing beast might be based upon a description of a giraffe, there is from the other end of the world a report about an animal from foreign lands that was brought to the court of the Ming Emperor at Beijing in 1418. On its arrival, it was expected to be the wonderful Qi Lin, the mysterious unicorn of Chinese lore and harbinger of golden ages to come. In one of those amazing examples of record-keeping in the Middle Empire, it was soon realized that this marvel of a creature matched the description of an exotic beast duly reported almost 200 years earlier, in 1225, by a customs official at the seaport of Kanzao. Although it seems that this official had his information only second-hand, probably from some far-traveled sea captain, the description is quite remarkably accurate in painting a word picture of a giraffe as an animal called Zula, probably a Chinese transliteration of Zurafa, with a leopard's hide, a cow's hooves, a ten-foot-tall body, and a nine-foot neck. So to understand this, let's put it in sequence. In uh, 1225, an official in the seaport of Quanzhou heard about a distant animal with a leopard's hide, cow's hooves, a ten-foot-tall body, and a nine-foot neck. That's clearly a giraffe. And he was he was told that the same animal was a Zula. The major language in Guangzhou or Guangzhou is Cantonese. Cantonese has the sound of the letter L, but it doesn't have a distinct equivalent of the letter R. So Cantonese speakers tend to pronounce L and R the same. Consequently, Zula is probably a cantonification of the Arabic word zarafa or zarafa. So we even have the Arabic name for giraffes being applied to this animal. The seaport official then made a note of this, and then almost 200 years later, in 1418, they brought a foreign animal to the Ming emperor in Beijing, and it matched the description of the animal from two centuries ago. So we have evidence of giraffes being shipped to royals in very distant lands in the 1400s, just before Mallory wrote. And Beijing is much farther away from where giraffes live than Europe is, so they were definitely getting around due to global shipping. Nickel also found direct evidence of them being shipped to Europe and also before Mallory wrote. Perhaps the description of the questing beast was styled after a tale about the private menagerie of Emperor Frederick II, 1194 to 1250, who liked to amaze his Italian and German subjects by taking his exotic pets, such as elephants, camels, lions, leopards, and giraffes, presents from the Sultan, along on his travels through his realm. 
So in the 1200s, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II was showing off his exotic pets, which he got from the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire by taking them along on his trips around his domains and amazing the locals. And these pets are known to have included giraffes. We thus have evidence of giraffes in Europe in royal menageries more than 200 years before Mallory wrote. Based on this identification, we can even get a good idea of what people would have seen in the Arthurian legends. You'll note that King Arthur and Sir Tristan both saw the questing beast drinking from a spring. Well, we now have pictures of giraffes drinking from natural water sources. In fact, we'll have such a picture in the video version of the podcast so you can see it for yourself. But we now know exactly what that would have looked like to King Arthur and Sir Tristan. What about the thing that the questing beast was most famous for, the sound in its body that was so impressive it gave the creature its name? Do giraffes even make sounds? Giraffes have a reputation for being rather quiet animals, which is not surprising since they're herbivores, and herbivores tend to be quiet so as not to attract the attention of predators. But they do sometimes make sounds. Some of these sounds are snorts that they make with their noses or grunts that they make with their mouths, but it turns out that they also make another sound, and they make it inside their bodies, not with their noses or mouths, just like the death of Arthur says they do. Back in 2015, Time Magazine reported, It's long been assumed that unlike other animals, giraffes are largely silent beasts. They don't oink, moo, or roar. But new research suggests perhaps giraffes do have a distinct sound. They hum. It was previously believed that giraffes may make sounds that are impossible for humans to hear, similar to elephants. But the new research suggests otherwise. In a new study published in the journal Biomed Central, researchers recorded over 940 hours of sounds from giraffes at three zoos over an eight-year period. Beyond the occasional snort or grunt, the researchers recorded humming sounds that the giraffes made only at night. The humming was 92 hertz in frequency, Wired reports, which is still audible to humans, but pretty low. And 92 hertz is quite low. Um, a hertz is, is a measure of frequency. It's how many times per second a wave peaks. So one hertz is a wave that peaks once a second. 10 hertz is a wave that peaks 10 times a second and so on. Of all the human senses, our hearing has the broadest range. A normal, healthy young person can hear frequencies all the way up to 20,000 hertz and all the way down to 20 hertz, a range of a thousand times or three orders of magnitude. But still, 92 hertz is very low on that spectrum. Now, the hum that giraffes make is slower than the sound of barking dogs. And it's not a bark, but it does sound kind of sort of like baying hounds. It might do so even more if you heard it at night in the distance, kind of like listening to a pack of dogs hunting at night. And thanks to the miracle of modern technology, I can let you hear exactly what it sounds like to human ears. It sounds exactly like this. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And if you think about how large giraffes are, you can imagine how loud that sound could be, especially in the quiet of night. So it's quite possible that someone heard giraffes making this noise, perhaps in a royal menagerie or out in the woods, and thought it kind of sounded like dogs. They were so impressed that they told others about it, and they described it rather fancifully as a sound like a bunch of dogs baying. And so that may be the actual baying sound that gave the questing beast its name. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the questing beast? I think the questing beast is a real cryptid. It may not be as exciting as creatures that are currently undiscovered, but it's a real beast that was a cryptid or hidden animal to many people in medieval France and Britain. We have since discovered it and learned about it in another context during the Age of Exploration, so it's a cryptid that's already been solved. Uh, and just recently, scholars began to recognize this. And I think based on the lines of evidence we've covered in this episode that they're right. The questing beast is better known to us today as the exotic giraffe. Mystery solved. Excellent. So what further resources can we offer to the viewers and listeners on the questing beast? We'll have uh, links to David Gerald Davis's book, Le Mort d'Arthur, or however you say it, A New Retelling. Also, Samuel Wilson's book, The Emperor's Giraffe, and other stories in contact. Dorsey Armstrong's course, Medieval Myths and Mysteries. Information about Thomas Mallory, The War of the Roses, Pelicans in Christian History, Giraffes, The Questing Beast. Helmut Nichols' article, What Kind of Animal Was the Questing Beast? Information about the Camelopardus constellation and the etymology of Camelopardus, as well as an article on giraffe sounds and also a video of giraffe sounds. And, of course, the Knights of the Round Table song. <laughs> so that's it from us this time. What are your theories about the questing beast? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they've done on this episode. You can see what they do and hire them yourself. Um, if you go to uh, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where you can see their work. While you're there, I'd appreciate it if you like, comment, and subscribe, because if you engage with the page in that way, that tells YouTube you found it engaging. And so it'll show it to other people as well. So you can help the channel grow in that way by liking, commenting, and especially by subscribing. And when you do that, uh, be sure and hit the bell notification so that you actually get notified um, when I have a new video, which I usually do two or three times a week now. Um, I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be looking at a UFO mystery. Uh, there have long been stories about UFOs taking an interest in human nuclear missiles, both here in the United States and in the former Soviet Union. In 1964, the American military was testing a nuclear warhead delivery system off the coast of Big Sur, California, and a UFO shot it down. 
So next week, we'll be telling you the story of the Big Sur nuclear missile shootdown. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 284. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at gradygroupinc.com and by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs Matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com and by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Well, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Let's Science. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash science.